growing beyond our roots, which was really around lending and capital formation to really this idea of enablement and how do we enable customers to grow their businesses with different technologies and different financial services that can ultimately help all of us be more successful together. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey everyone, Annie Dickerson here. And on behalf of Julie Lamb, we're thrilled to welcome you to this episode of the Life and Money Show. Now today we have the pleasure and honor of talking with Matt Rodak. He's the founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. Now in talking to Matt, it reminded me of the one time that my husband and I tried to do a fix and flip and it turned out well, thankfully. That's the spoiler alert. It actually, we did make some money on it, but man, was it a ton of work. So much work. And I very much admire the people who actually do fix and flips because it is a lot of work, but it also provides such a great service for the community because it's such a huge undertaking for somebody who has no experience in that level of construction and renovation to be able to take something where there's maybe no kitchen in there or things are falling apart. There hasn't been any attention paid to the property in years. And to take that and to have a vision to be able to carry that through, especially if you're working another job as well. So loved talking with Matt about his experience. He kind of had a similar experience where he originally thought he was going to build a flipping business. And as he got into it, he realized it was a lot more work than he had thought. And he actually wasn't passionate about all the details that come with flipping a property, which we had to do as well, including everything from picking the light fixtures to the flooring, to the paint colors, to deciding on the landscaping and all of that stuff. That's all part of this vision because when you invest in a fix and flip, essentially you're buying a business. And as the business owner, you have to have that vision and be able to implement and carry out that vision in order to eventually be able to sell and to make the profit, which is ultimately why you got into it in the first place, right? So Matt, in this conversation, he talks about how he started down that path, but quickly realized that wasn't his passion, but he realized there was this opportunity on the flip side, no pun intended, but on the flip side of the flip, which was the lending side. And that's what his company Fund That Flip is all about. It's about connecting these people who want to get into and roll up their sleeves and do the fix and flip, as well as the people who are more passive, as many of you might be, the people who are a little bit more passive, maybe you've got some more capital to invest, but you don't want to really dig in and do all the work yourself, but you want to place that capital in a place that's going to get you a good risk-adjusted return. And so Matt, I still can't believe it. I met Matt years ago. The company Fund That Flip was already off the ground at that point, but they started in the show, he talks about how they started with, I think, just a team of four back in 2014, around that time frame. And these days, just eight years later, they're up to over 200 employees with a very successful platform. And what I love about it most is that it's a win-win. It connects people who want to do these fix and flip projects and those who want to be more passive. And it gives them both an opportunity to reach their investing goals. And so it's a win-win for everybody involved. Now, towards the end of the show, Matt does talk about how to really think about 
not only how to fit lending into your greater portfolio, but also how to think about diversification, which is also a big part of what we talk about at Good Egg Investments. And it's not necessarily what you think, it's not diversifying into all sorts of different types of assets, but it's really picking your lane, picking what you really understand and what you're passionate about that's in line with your values, and then diversifying within that. And he talks about how to think about lending as a component of your greater portfolio, especially in the face of this shifting market. Now, before we dive in, if you are wanting to be a passive investor and you are not sure if lending is the right path for you, but you're curious, maybe you've heard about this thing called real estate syndications, which are these group investments into commercial properties. Maybe you've heard about them. Maybe you're getting ready to invest in your first syndication, but you're not quite sure of all the things that you need to know or be aware of. We've got a great resource for you. It's our book called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with Matt Rodak. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you here. Now, Matt, I believe we first met, I think it was at the Best Ever Conference years ago, back when Good Egg was just barely getting off the ground. And in many ways, I think Julie and I at that time were still subject to the shiny object syndrome with all the various <laughs> possibilities in real estate investing. But at the time, I remember that your business, Fund That Flip, was already going strong. It was such an inspiration to us at the time and still is. And I know it's only grown since then and definitely want to dig into all all of that. But before we do, I want you to start by taking us back before you got into real estate investing. And even before you were in, I think you were in commercial property risk management, which I'm sure sounds as, as exciting as it was. But how did you get into real estate and commercial properties, all of that stuff? Was that something you were interested in growing up or had heard about? Was your family involved? How did you get into it all? Yeah, I've always had some interest in real estate and call it the built world. I remember growing up and we were in a development and new homes were going up and my brother and I would go and play on the job sites and run through the houses as they're being built and just generally thought it was cool. My grandfather was a carpenter, right? So always spent time in his wood shop and liked this idea of building something. I think my journey into real estate investing started in earnest in high school, actually. And I had a small landscaping business. So I've always had this entrepreneurial itch, I think, too. My dad's a small business owner. So I think it was born with it. Maybe it's a curse. I don't know. Maybe it's a benefit, but had a small landscaping business. It started at like nine and 10. My uncle had a rental property and he hired us to cut the grass. And that evolved to the point where I was eventually got my driver's license and bought a truck and a trailer and some commercial landscaping equipment. And just through the natural course of business development, ended up doing a lot of work for house flippers and rental property owners. So got this exposure to see guys and gals buying these really ugly, nasty houses. And we even occasionally would get involved in like the demo, right? Because we were cheap labor that had trucks and trailers and we'd go see these houses kind of before they got renovated and then followed them through the progression as we cut the grass and did some of the landscaping. And at the end of it, would see one of the nicest houses on the block and just thought that was really cool how these people were providing a service to the neighborhoods and the communities and doing something that looked really fun from a creative and just rewarding perspective. And I like to say they also weren't shy to 
tell me how much money they were making, right, on each one of their <laughs> projects. So as a 16-year-old seeing someone just making 50 or 60,000 bucks in Northeast Ohio, I was like, whoa, like this is a really cool way to make a living. So kind of had that experience and learned a little bit from them on how they bought stuff and managed projects and learned enough to say, like, I think that's something I want to do when I grow up. So sold the landscaping business. I went off to college. I studied finance, took all the real estate courses that I could kind of going through college and really was hoping to get into some type of real estate development post-graduation. So I graduated in 2007. Probably remember it was happening to the housing market around that time. Oh, yeah. Great timing. Yeah. So maybe it was. I don't know. But couldn't find a lot of, I would say, jobs or opportunities right out of school in my desired profession of real estate investing and had college bills to pay. And as you mentioned, I eventually found my way into something that I at least justified to myself was tangential to real estate, which was commercial property insurance. So I started off with a really good company in Cleveland, Ohio in a production underwriter role. And it was one part analyzing large commercial property risk and one part business development. It turns out I was pretty good at the business development part of that job. And I was also the young kid out of school saying our website stinks, our marketing you know, material stink. And like we could be doing so much better if we had CRMs. And eventually I think annoyed enough people up the chain, they asked me to move from Cleveland to Rhode Island, where the company was headquartered and work on all those things. So I got three years of experience kind of working with a team that had built this business from a $50 million business into $900 million business over an, an eight-year period. And I was tasked with kind of institutionalizing their sales and marketing function. So got to build all those websites and CRMs and got to travel the world and train the company on how to position and sell our product and learned a ton. I like to say it was kind of my mini MBA, if you will, and a little bit of intrapreneurship, right? Where I got to do and build things, but in a much larger organization. I learned a ton. I think the biggest thing that I learned through that experience is that I didn't want to be an insurance executive for the rest of my life. I kind of saw what that path looked like. And it was a fine path, but just not super inspiring for me personally. So started to get, kind of revisit different entrepreneur ideas and getting back to my initial path. It hadn't lost kind of my passion for real estate investing. And this is probably 2010, 2011. So started to kind of dabble in flipping houses. Got plugged into the local real estate investor community up in, in Providence and worked for free on the weekends and did some partnerships and eventually got to the place where I felt comfortable doing some of my own deals. And through that experience, first things I learned was that I couldn't just walk into like Wells Fargo or Bank of America and ask for a loan right on a house that was coming out of foreclosure that didn't have a kitchen and was in pretty bad shape. And I also realized, well, this is a very capital intensive business, right? Like it's expensive to buy a house. It's expensive to renovate it, expensive to carry it. So eventually, was like, well, how do people finance these things, right? And learned of the whole hard money lending industry or private money lending industry, which was very interesting to me. Small outfit that I worked with out of Rhode Island, they charged me four points and 14% interest and had no technology, believe it or not. Like he had an eight page paper application that you had to like hand <laughs> fill out and like, he wouldn't take it from email either. You couldn't scan it in email. You had to either go hand deliver it to him or like no joke, like, really fax, old school. like fax it to him. <laughs> Very experienced gentleman. I'll leave it at that. But, and then I just had some bad experiences, right? I got, I remember being at the closing table and calling him up being like, Hey, where's the wire? Like, we're closing today. You had agreed to like fund this project. And he's like, Oh, yeah, sorry, I ran out of money. And it was like, kind of doesn't work for me. Like, I have earnest money deposit and like the seller wants to get rid of this thing. And, so long story short is that I kind of started an opportunity in the market for, man, there's got to be a better way to really provide a service to professional real estate investors that need access to capital, need it to be reliable, transparent, et cetera. So an idea started to form in my mind a little bit around maybe starting a lending business. At the same time, I was doing some personal investing 
was called peer-to-peer lending back in the day. These new companies called Prosper and Lending Club that had invented a new way for borrowers to consolidate credit card debt or take out consumer loans. And then they were syndicating those loans online. And people like me could invest as little as like $50 into a loan, Annie, that maybe you had taken out to put a pool in your backyard or whatever, right? So it was a way that I had deployed some capital outside the stock market and was earning a 9 or 10 or 11% return on money, which interest rates were zero. So like that was great. And I started to think like, man, I only get a 9 or 10% return on this unsecured consumer credit, which the outcomes are very binary. I either get all of my interest and all of my principal, or I get none of my interest and none of my principal. And I'm paying this hard money lender upwards of 18% on an annualized basis. And they've got collateral, right? They've got a first position mortgage. I've got typically 20 or 25% of my equity kind of in a first loss position. So the other piece of the equation of what is now fund that flip started to come together around, well, it looks like there's a real opportunity to create a better experience for borrowers, right? That need to borrow capital to renovate homes. And it also seems like there's this appetite for passive investors that want to get yield and something that's uncorrelated to the stock market that they can understand. And Lending Club and Prosper had at that point, proven out that you could raise money at scale in small increments. So that was kind of the, well, why don't we bring these two ideas together? And then the third thing that kind of came together along that same timeline was some new legislation that was passed, which is known as the Jobs Act now, but eventually essentially created a legal framework that you could raise money online from people that you don't have a previous existing relationship from, so long as those people are what's called an accredited investor. So giving you the long story of how I got to fund that flip, but at that point, I was like, man, I'm young enough. I got enough money saved up. I don't have a wife or kids. And I know that I don't want to do this thing over here full time. And the funny thing is I didn't like flipping houses actually after I did it. Like I drove me nuts all like the small decisions that you have to make on paint colors. And like, like this lending thing seems like I'm still like in and around it. Like I like looking at deals, but I don't have to like pick what shade of white. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It just felt like something that could scale more. Right. So packed up my stuff, moved down to New York city. We started kind of putting a business plan together and a team and some legal framework and some technology. And I guess the rest is history as they say. And that was 2014. Is that right? Yeah, I moved to New York in the middle of 2013, went through some kind of incubator programs in 2014. We incorporated in 14, and then we actually did our first loan in 2015. So this year will be the eighth year where I quit my job in 2014, a month before I got married. So my wife is a saint as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I bet. Oh my gosh. Those early years, especially of getting a business off the ground can't have been easy. But you know what strikes me about your story, even from way back when you started getting into mowing lawns and landscaping business at nine and 10 years old, and then through to when you worked in commercial property insurance and then started flipping, it seems like you always had this combination of working hard and follow through and this concept of never settling. And you were always at each stage, you were looking for how can I add more value or how can I improve this for the customers, for our team? Is there an idea here? And I guess that's the entrepreneurial side of you. So it sounds like from an early age, even that was always a part of how you operate. And it's kind of the through line through all these different ventures that you were a part of that eventually led to fund that flip, because it seems like you were never content to just be like, yep, I'm going to clock in and clock out and this is good enough. But you were always looking for, okay, what is that next thing? What is that next step? How can I make this even bigger and better? 
Yeah, I think it's something, you know, maybe I learned through, I played a lot of sports growing up, but I was never the most gifted athlete. What I figured out early on was like, I can just work harder than everyone else and like <laughs> find my way onto the field through extra effort and stuff. So it's, it's funny you say that because like big part of our culture here at Fun That Flip is we call the hustle culture. I mean, hustle has kind of taken on its own meaning, some good and maybe some less good over the years, but it's an acronym for us that kind of stands for hard work, unity, success, transparency, learn every day and empathy, which is really core to the culture that we've built here, but also speaks to this idea of, hey, we don't need you to be the smartest person. We don't need you to come with Harvard degree or a lot of this experience. We just need you to show up and care and have competency and be willing to put in the effort. And if you can do that, we can teach you everything else that there is to learn about the business that we operate in. And I think that's been a huge, if I got one thing right, the early days of the business, it was really establishing that core set of values that we look for and people that we hire and that we ultimately hold people accountable to created a really special place here. I think in terms of our Cleveland office this week and you walk around and like nobody's on Instagram or they're excited to be here and working together as a team. And it's one of the things I think I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. That strong team culture. I mean, you can't do what you do without the people that you do it with. And when you attract the right people who are on board with the same mission, vision, and values, then it's like this it's almost like a secret. It's like this thing that you're like, we're building this together. We're like, it's us against the world, right? But in your case, you're creating these win-win situations. So let's pick it up in 2013, 2014. You moved to New York City, you go through some incubator programs, you get this thing off the ground. So at that time, tell us about Fund That Flip then versus what it is today. Was it the same sort of concept? Has it evolved over time? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the thesis really was that there's an inefficient market around forming capital for residential fix and flip. And we've evolved into also doing residential new construction. So particularly coming out of the great financial crisis and some of the new regulations around banking and things like that, there was a huge gap in the market around capital for really single family investment properties. The other side of that thesis was that people are looking for alternative ways to passively deploy their capital and things that are other than the stock market, right? Because again, post great financial crisis, wild swings, a lot of beta in the market. And for a certain type of person, they don't want to be exposed to traditional bond and equity portfolio, right? So we really have a marketplace business and two very distinct customers where we serve real estate investors that are borrowing money from us and they've got a certain set of needs and things that are important to them. And the other side of our marketplace is there's accredited investors that are looking for ways to get access to this type of investment product, but maybe either don't have the network of professionals that are finding these deals. There's a lot of work that has to go into properly underwriting and perfecting a first lien and looking at title insurance and background and credit and all those things, right? So we do all of that for our passive investors so that they can confidently deploy capital. So that's still very much what we do. And that was very much the thesis that when we started and that obviously we could bring technology to all of this to make this work efficiently and with an extraordinary experience for customers and ultimately scalable. So still very much the kind of core thesis that we're operating today. I think obviously we're doing it a a lot more scale. I think we did $2 million of loans our first year in 2014, and we'll do $1.1 billion this year. Our team was four people. It's 240 people. Oh so <laughs> there's been a lot of learning curves yeah. for me, right? As someone who was at first our salesperson, our finance person, our accounting person, our underwriter person to now, I don't really do anything in the business, <laughs> which is again, a testament to the team. But you know, I think the other piece of this, and this is what 
I spend a lot of my time on now that's still exciting is we look at the real estate investor really as, as business owner, right? And a big part of their business is obviously securing financing for their business. But there's a lot of other things that they have to do well to have a successful business, right? And find deals, it's analyze those deals, it's put together statements of work, it's organize contractors and subcontractors, it's pay all of those people on time, it's ultimately list and disposition the property or refinance it. So we're looking to figure out how do we add value in that entire value chain of the business owner, which is a real estate investor. So we bought a business earlier this year called Flipper Force that has built a lot of software around how do you find deals, analyze deals, integrating that into our overall product offering, which we think is going back to win-win, right? If we can help people find more deals, we can help them analyze them better. We can help them manage their expenses better. Our loan performance is going to be better, right? And ultimately our returns for our investors are going to be better, right? So that's the thing that I get really excited about is growing beyond our roots, which was really around lending and capital formation to really this idea of enablement, right? And how do we enable customers to grow their businesses with different technologies and different financial services that can ultimately help all of us be more successful together. We'll get back to our conversation with Matt in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now back to our chat with Matt Rodak. Hmm. And on that note, I'm curious, do you have people who maybe they started out rolling up their sleeves, wanting to get in there? Maybe they started flipping and using the platform to take out loans or find loans. And then eventually they build up their business, they scale their business, and maybe they decide, you know what, I kind of want to be more on the passive side, or maybe I want to do active and passive and they get on the lending side. Do you see that kind of growth over time? 
Yeah, we see a little bit of that. Look, that's the ideal thing, right? Is like you've got a customer base that likes to play on both sides of your marketplace, depending on kind of where they're at in their journey. I think it's a different risk return profile typically for the active investor versus the passive investor. The active investor is looking to get high returns and some more risk, right? And they're managing that risk because they're actually operating the asset, right? So not that returns on the platform today are 10 to 12% for our passive investors, but a lot of the active real estate investors, you can generate a higher yield by operating. So it's a different, they tend to be at slightly different stages of their life and their risk and return profiles versus someone who's probably already made their money, right? And they're looking more to not lose that nest egg that they've Mm -hmm. built, right? But they don't want to work a job right? They want to be with their grandkids or go on vacations or pursue other passions that they have. So there's not a lot of crossover for that reason. Mm -hmm. But I think the longer our business is around, the more you'll see people transition out of wanting to be operators and into capital preservers, if you will, in which case, hopefully they'll they'll choose us for, for part of that allocation. Yeah, absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, I'm sure you get this question all the time these days, but what is happening in the market? <laughs> what are you seeing out there? Are you seeing like more people coming in and doing fix and flips these days? Are you finding more people interested in lending? What has been sort of since inception in 2014 through the pandemic and now, what are you seeing out there? There in the market. Well, man, where to begin? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting in a lot of ways, the market today looks a lot like 2014, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at things from a, just a fundamental basis, the volume of 30-year mortgage applications, which is a, a good barometer on demand, right, for purchasing new houses, today looks a lot like it looked like in 2014 on the MBA purchase index. And that's very different than what it looked like six months ago. Six months ago, it was the highest it had ever been in recorded history for that purchase index, right? So I think we've seen a tremendous rise and fall over the years in demand. I think what gives me a lot of hope for and confidence really in our industry is that demand is fundamentally real, right? So relative to the demand that was generated kind of in 2005, six and seven, leading up to the financial crisis, a lot of that demand was not real demand, which was primarily driven by people speculating on the housing market. And a lot of the demand that's been driving kind of the fundamentals of the industry over the past really decade is demographically driven, right? So our generation, the millennials, right, are the largest generation. There's 72 million of us. We're all kind of reaching that peak earnings, having families, paying off college debt, and getting into that prime home buyer age, either as a first-time home buyer or a move-up home buyer. So all that demand through COVID and even before COVID, housing broke out actually in February of 2020, right? Or January of 2020. So all of that, what I would what I consider to be delayed demand from our millennial cohort because of some of the decisions that we've made of to get married later in life and to have start families later than our parents did. And that college debt burden all started to come online really in 2019 and 2020. Because of the great financial crisis, we had underbuilt right three and a half, four and a half, five million homes, depending on the different data that you look at. So the result of that obviously is greater demand than supply, which leads to unsustainable home price appreciation. The good news of this kind of story is that it's, it's real demand. That demand isn't going anywhere like long-term. What we're faced with now is an interest rate environment that just changed too quick for anybody to really adjust their life plans to, right? So it went from 3% or sub 3% 30-year mortgages to 7%, and we've kind of come back down to the mid sixes. And it's just really hard for anybody to plan a large life decision like buying a house or selling your house and buying another house when there's so much uncertainty around 
what's my mortgage payment going to be, right? So I think kind of the other data that's really interesting around this is the reason that I know we're not in another 2000, kind of 7, 2008 situation is we still have record low supply, right? So there's only about 1.2, 1.3 million active listings today. A healthy number is two and a half million, right? So we're still, right? So if we were in another 2008, you'd have seen that supply go way up right? All these people panic selling or had to sell their homes. We didn't see that, right? Which means homeowners are just, most buyers of real estates are also sellers of real estate. So they're just saying, I'm going to stay in my 3% mortgage. I'm going to maybe make some renovations to the house, or I'm going to just bide some time until I make that big life decision. I think what happens over the next three, six, nine months is we start to get some stabilization around the 30-year mortgage, which then allows people to plan what can I afford based on my income and my savings. And that brings back the confidence of to make a decision here around this meaningful life event. And that demand is not going away short of 10 million millennials dying, right? They're going to be there. That demand is going to be there. So I think long-term housing has a good story to tell. I think saw over the past two years probably wasn't super healthy just in terms of the rate of change in HPA. And my view on it is like fundamentally, the problem is not demand, it's supply, right? So like we just have to figure out a way as a country to get more housing supply to bring down the cost of new homes or really the cost of rent, right? Which is it's a big thing that's contributing to inflation, which is what's driving ultimately the Fed's decision to take rates up. So difficult problem to solve, but I think in time, the market balances itself out as it does. And my hope is that we see a more healthy and sustainable growth in housing, which can allow the builders to build and us to catch up a little bit on some of the supply, which is really what's kind of the problem in my view. I have one more question before we move on to the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, which is a lot of our listeners are more on the, when we look at the active versus the passive side of things, they tend to be more on the passive side. And so when a lot of them have invested maybe in some syndications with us, when they're thinking about investing in a syndication versus rental property versus lending, how do you recommend people think about fitting lending into that picture, especially in the face of what we're seeing with the economic shifts of late? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'll speak specifically to kind of the lending product that we offer to our passive investors. I think the three kind of core benefits in my mind are, the first is it's short duration, right? So most of our loans, because they're fixed and flip or they're new construction, they're nine to 12 to maybe 18 month term loans. So relative to syndication, I do syndication investments as well, but like you're typically locked in for five years or seven years or 10 years, right? For the life of that project to play out. So one of the things that our investors like, I do a lot of investing on our platform. One of the things they like is this short duration, right? So I can park my money in a deal. It's going to be in there for nine or 12 or 18 months. I'm going to get my principal back when that loan repays and I can I can make a new decision on how I want to deploy that capital. So the first thing is kind of the short duration nature of it. The second thing is the relatively high yielding, right? So I mentioned this earlier, if you go on our platform, I think they're in the 10 to 12% range right now, given the current interest environment. So on a relative basis, we think an attractive risk adjusted return. The third piece then is it's asset backed. Right. So all of these mortgages are backed by first position mortgages, which means there's real collateral and the probability of your investment going from, let's say you make a $5,000 or a $10,000 investment into a deal, of that going to zero, pretty low probability that goes to zero. So there's going to be a relatively high recovery rate against that if something does go wrong. Then maybe the fourth thing is specific to our platform is you can get started with as little as five grand. Right. So if it's something that 
you're new to and you want to learn and you want to see if it kind of fits into your overall allocation. It's not like $100,000 minimum investment or $250,000 minimum investment. It's literally five grand. You start to get monthly interest payments. You start to see kind of how updates progress. You can see if it's something that works for you. And if not, it's five grand. It's something you do like, then you can scale up over time. And I think that's something that people appreciate. So just not to make this too much of a commercial, but you can invest in individual deals, which some people like too, right? So I can pick, I like North Carolina or I like Austin or I like Philadelphia or I like Baltimore. And we provide a fair amount of information so you can make an educated decision. We also have some like more fund-like products. So over the years, our investors have said, I like the asset class. We like the return profile. We like the duration, but I'm tired of like doing $10,000 investments. Yeah. <laughs> can I just give you a hundred grand yes. or 50 grand or 25 right. grand and let you guys deal with it. So we have some different fun type products as well that mm-hmm. are even more passive, I guess, than the individual yeah. deal selection. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think that duration piece and the flexibility of how much to invest, I think those are huge. And especially for folks out there who are investing in syndications, these longer term investments with perhaps greater amounts of capital, this can be a great additional piece of your portfolio to help diversify, especially since a lot of syndications you're investing in the equity side of things and this you would be investing in the debt side of things. So that also helps to balance out the risk over time. If you ladder it right, just one last yeah. point is like, I have 40 or $50,000 of liquidity every month that's created, right? So like every month, because of the way that I've made the investments and the durations work and the diversification, every month I get 30, 40, $50,000 money back. And it's like, well, what do I want to do with this now? And like, sometimes it's reinvest it. Sometimes it's go do something else with it, right? So builds in some of that natural liquidity too, if that's something that's important to you. Exactly. Oh man. I'm sure our listeners are hearing that and being like, fifty thousand dollars in liquidity a month generated. <laughs> oh man. Now everybody's dreaming about yachts and luxury vacations <laughs> and this and that. That's awesome. It's Bil- my money I'm getting back, just to be clear. Yes. You know, that's it's not a return. Yeah. Right. It's great that you've built up not only this way for you to invest personally, but also this platform and this engine to allow others to invest in multiple ways depending on their needs and their goals goals. And clearly it's added a lot of value to a lot of people, and it, which is why you've seen that growth over time. But so inspired by you and the growth that you've seen and excited to see where you take it from here. I know we've covered a lot on this conversation, but now we're going to move into our Life and Money Show Spotlight Round. We're going to ask you three questions we ask all our guests. You ready, Matt? Let's do it. Okay. The first question is around your life and money. Share with us one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design. Yeah. We had our first kid, a son named Otto, about 15 months ago. And before that, my wife and I like to travel a lot. So we'd been to a lot of different countries, done a lot of different things, kind of really started with our honeymoon. And I think one of the things that both of us were a little, didn't want to give up was that travel, right? It's something that was important to us and something that we enjoyed doing and kind of then questioning like, how do kids change that equation? And we just decided like, let's not have it change the equation. So we've been very intentional with, uh, we got him on his first plane when he was three months and started with a trip from the East Coast to the West Coast. And we did a trip to Portugal at nine when he was nine months. So a seven-hour flight with him on my lap as he was learning to kind of start to stand was a lot of fun. But I think for us, it was this is something that's important to us in our relationship. And we want to get out of our lives and we want to share that also with our kids. So we got them started young and started to build kind of this, I think, more so confidence in our ability right, to travel with a baby. Certainly a little bit different once you get there and what you can do and planning around nap times and feedings and all that stuff. But Something that we're looking forward to continuing to do. And as he grows, 
being part of our family, uh, this is something that's important to us. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. That's something that's super important to Julie and me as well. I know recently Julie took her whole family. She took her kids out of school, started homeschooling, and they traveled all around the world for an entire year and they loved that's it. Awesome. But even, of course, it came with the stresses, right? And yep. as I hear you talking about it, I'm reminded of those early days when my kids were three and four months. We took them to China, long trips. And I remember I've changed diapers on the hood of a car, <laughs> on the floor of a moving train like all sorts yeah. of things. What's cool about it is like it kind of you have to fly by the seat of your pants when you're yeah. traveling with babies and toddlers, especially. But what I love about it is when you come back home and you've got your changing table right there, you've got the diapers there, you've got everything laid out. You're like, I could do this. This isn't so bad. So it sort of helps put everything in perspective in a way, which I've always loved. And I think it's great for the kids because like they also have yes. to learn how to be outside yes. of their comfort zone and they can't cry the whole seven hour flight. So like that's right. Eventually figure it out. Like this is what it's gonna yes. be. And like I think it helps them adjust and be yeah. more comfortable in the world yes. that they're gonna grow yeah. up in. So that adaptability is so huge in today's yep. world, especially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Second question is about others' life and money. So share with us one life or money hack that's really helped you on your journey that you think will help others as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'll apologize in advance to any financial advisors out there, but like, I'm not a big believer in diversifying. I actually believe that you should invest a large percentage of your capital in things that one, you understand and two, that you're passionate about if you really want to generate some type of alpha return. So like very high percentage of my personal net worth is tied up in this company in real estate. And whatever is not tied up in this company and real estate is in other startups. So like I'm passionate about real estate investing and I'm passionate about venture investing and startup investing. And like, that's where most of my capital is. Now I diversify within those, right? So I've got a lot of different real estate strategies with a lot of different sponsors, a lot of different projects and same on the startup side, but just never felt good about like investing in a mutual fund and like counting on the whims of the market or diversifying. Like, yes. I don't know. Like if you're going to take an active role in managing your own money, I think what's important is that, again, it's something that you can fundamentally understand and too, that you just genuinely enjoy doing the research and the work and conversations that have to be had to make the smart investment decisions. So I guess we'll see how it plays out in the long run, but that's my strategy <laughs> I'm putting in place today. <laughs> right there with you. And I think that's such a key distinction because I think a lot of people think about diversification and they think, well, I have to have one of each of the different things, but it's not actually diversification can be deeper down exactly like what you're saying. It doesn't have to be top level. It can be bottom level where you choose the one or two lanes that you specialize in and then you diversify within that. And that's actually the smartest way to diversify because like you're saying, you actually understand what you're investing in and you're not spreading yourself too thin or spreading yourself just for the sake of diversification, which is I think where a lot of people get stuck. Yep. All right. Final question is, how are you helping to create a better world? Yeah, I thought long and hard about this one. I mean, I think I'm a huge believer in home ownership. And I think I saw the benefits of this when I bought my first house in my early to mid 20s and remember selling that thing and all the money that hit my bank account. And I was like, whoa, like this is kind of like game changing on a net worth kind of event for where I was at in that life. And you start to look at the data, the difference between 
people's net worth that own homes versus that don't own homes. It's an incredible difference, right? So yeah, that's really what our company is all about and hit on this a little bit earlier around the the supply problem of home attainability or home affordability. So that's what we do on a day-to-day basis is we try to enable these real estate investors that I believe are providing an incredible service to local communities and the future homeowners of taking either properties that are unlivable and making them livable again or creating completely new inventory from scratch on the new construction side. So we like to think that we're playing a small role in helping with this. Really, I think this this really big challenge for the country of making sure there's enough housing for everyone that is safe and enjoyable and fully aspirational for the life that folks want to live. Absolutely. And you're right. It's a big, hairy challenge and it's not going to be any one thing that changes it or fixes it. It's going to be a lot of these smaller solutions that fit into these niches, which is exactly what you're doing in the service that you're providing, which is why you've seen the growth that you have. It's been absolutely incredible. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to want to follow up, learn a little bit more, maybe get engaged on the platform. So tell everybody if they wanted to learn more, what's the best place that they can go? Yeah. So the best place is always our website. It's just www.fundthatflip.com. Quite a bit of, I think, really good information on there, particularly for people that want to learn about lending and hard money lending and what we do. So we've got a pretty thorough 12-step guide on our blog where it kind of walks you through everything from how to think about allocations to setting up an account to managing your account. And then we're pretty active on all the different socials, right? So you can find our Fund That Flip tag on Twitter and Instagram. And I think we even have a TikTok account at this point. So whatever your flavor of choice is on social, our team puts out a lot of great content on projects that we're funding, as well as some educational things on how to get involved. Fantastic. Matt Rodak, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. Matt, thank you so much for being here and sharing your insights and your story with us and our listeners today. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 